In northern Italy, a small stream gurgles on its lazy meander to the sea. The Rubicon River is no impressive waterway by anyone's estimation, but a half century before the birth of Jesus Christ, this shallow river formed an important line of demarcation. Ancient Roman law declared that no military general may cross the Rubicon with a standing army. To do so was treason against the Roman Republic. January of 49 BC, there's a gifted and ambitious military hero who's stationed with his army in the town of Ravenna, just north of the Rubicon. Julius Caesar has recently led his army to subdue the region of Gaul, and he has amassed in the process great wealth and fame, and he is now poised right on that Rubicon River. As you can imagine, the Senate of the Roman Republic is very wary. And in fact, they become so concerned that they send away all of Caesar's friends from the Senate. They banish them, and they send an edict. Caesar is to disband his army. He is to resign his command. And General Pompey has been entrusted to enforce this edict. Will Caesar submit? Or will he cross the Rubicon? Will he disband his army at Ravenna or head southward toward Rome and engage a civil war with Pompey? The fate of the Republic hangs on Caesar's decision and the Rubicon marks the point of no return. Under very different circumstances and with far greater implications, that is essentially where we find Jesus Christ as we come to Luke chapter 18. I invite you to that chapter in your text, Luke chapter 18. We have considered this passage of Scripture on Easter Sunday from a different context. But looking at this passage now, considering it in this light again, we see it now more in the context of the book of Luke and what is taking place at this point in Jesus' journey. He is, in a sense, like Caesar on the Rubicon. And if you'd note here, this will take a little bit of a challenge on the part of us who are used to looking at maps one way, but this is turned uh, sideways, this map, I suppose, to help us with writing uh, with the place names. But you'll notice over here, if you can find my pen mark, is the uh, Jordan River, or, or I'm sorry, the Dead Sea. This is the Dead Sea, and this is the Sea of Galilee over here. So you're looking in this direction toward the ocean. And the Jordan River winding its way down through this valley into the Dead Sea. Now there's some marks on here that we're not going to consider. But as we look at the life of Christ, he has been to Jerusalem and, uh, fairly recently and has made his way northward. At, a ver at the very time that some in Israel are journeying, journeying southward to the festival of Passover, Jesus has made his way northward and has come across and has spent time on this side of Jordan for some period of time. Now, 
I, my comment on the Passover is now coming more uh, uh, to this place in time. Jesus will be here on the Jordan River and will cross over that river on his way to Jericho and head his way upward in elevation about 17 miles from this place to Jerusalem, 17 mile trek from the Jordan River, or rather from Jericho, but he will stop first on this six mile trek to Jericho. He will rest at Jericho and then will make his journey upward to Jerusalem and the festival of Passover eventually. So as we're considering the life of Christ, as he crosses the Jordan River here, this is the final crossing, as it were. The crossing of Jordan will be the crossing to his final destiny and his last visit to Jerusalem. So we are at a very crucial time in the life of Jesus Christ as he stands on River Jordan, so to speak. Jesus stands on these banks, poised to cross over on his way to Jerusalem. His three-year ministry, three-plus years, now essentially finished. He has presented himself to Israel. He has demonstrated that he is Israel's Messiah, and he now braces for the climactic assault on the forces of darkness at Jerusalem. His face is set like a flint. Nothing will deter him. And he prepares his followers for what he knows is to come. Once they cross Jordan, the die is cast. This will be his last visit to the holy city. So he gathers his disciples and he prepares them. We do not have the account of Jesus actually crossing the Jordan at this place and time. But we know that he does, and we know that he meets with his disciples, and he sits them down and talks with them about what they are facing as they go to Jerusalem. Chapter 18 and verse 31. Jesus took the twelve aside, and he told them, We are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written by the prophets about the Son of Man will be fulfilled. The prophets. Jesus' mission is not fueled by selfish ambition, but by the sovereign purposes of God. Salvation history has long pointed to this very event, this decisive moment in salvation history. Jesus intends to fulfill his destiny. He will not be deterred. We are going up to Jerusalem. He refers to himself here as the Son of Man, and it is a pregnant title with great meaning in the context of the Old Testament. I'd like you to, as you keep a finger here, to turn back to Daniel chapter 7. I think it would be wise for us to read this passage in the prophecy of Daniel. Daniel chapter 7. Daniel receiving this great vision of things to come and of the eternal realm. Daniel chapter 7, beginning at verse 9. Daniel writes in this prophecy, 7-9, As I looked, thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was as white as snow, the hair of his head was white like wool. His throne was flaming with fire, and its wheels 
were all ablaze. The river of fire was flowing, coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands attended him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated and the books were opened. Here clearly a vision of the sovereign God in all of his splendor seated at his throne. Daniel continues, Then I continued to watch because of the boastful words of the horn that was speaking. I kept looking until the beast was slain and its body destroyed and thrown into the blazing fire. The other beasts had been stripped of their authority but were allowed to live for a period of time. This is all, of course, within the context of future days and what what Daniel is seeing. But now notice at verse 13, In my vision, at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into His presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All peoples, nations, and men of every language worshipped Him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and His kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. In the context of the book of Daniel, There are those who rise up from among men and stand forward and seek to dominate the world to their own glory. But here is one to whom God Himself turns over all sovereign power. This one whose dominion will be an everlasting dominion is seated in a place of authority and sovereign power by the Ancient of Days and He is referred to simply as a son of man. Jesus takes that very title from the Old Testament and says of himself, I am the son of man. Jesus never said he was God, the critics always tell us and remind us. Well, anybody can say that. But think of what Jesus is saying when he says, I am the Son of Man. I am that one to whom the Ancient of Days will turn over the power and the kingdom and the authority. The Son of Man has come and will cross Jordan. Back to Luke 18. The Son of Man... Everything that is written about Him by the prophets will be fulfilled. Who is this Son of Man as the Old Testament develops and as the New Testament now is being written, at least from our perspective, it is Jesus Christ who is this Son of Man. This Son of Man, Jesus says, verse 32, will be handed over to the Gentiles. They will mock Him, insult Him, spit on Him, flog Him, and kill him. That is mind-blowing information. You ask any Old Testament Israelite, what will be the fate of the Son of Man? And they could well turn to Daniel chapter 7, to that passage, and tell you, the Son of Man will rule supreme. Jesus says to his disciples, I am the Son of Man, but I am going to be flogged. 
I'll be handed over to the Gentiles. I will be abused with their mocking, insulting words. They will shred my back with a flog. They will torture me. They will stake my limbs to a cross, and they will lift me up to die. That is astonishing. Jesus knows his fate. And what is also astonishing is that Jesus says, we are going to Jerusalem. No one will ever love you more than that. His disciples must understand the mission. They must understand, however, that the mission does not stop at death. Verse 33, Jesus says, On the third day, He, that is the Son of Man, will rise again. Laid in a tomb on Friday, Christ's Spirit will return to His lifeless body on Sunday, and He will break the chains of death. It is a bold prophecy on which everything rests. The Son of Man will rise again. Jesus cannot speak any more clearly. However, verse 34, the disciples did not understand any of this. Its meaning was hidden from them, and they did not know what he was talking about. Three times Luke says the same thing. Did you notice that there? You don't need the next two phrases after phrase one. The disciples did not understand any of this. Let me say it a different way. The meaning was hidden from their eyes. Let me say it again. They did not know what he was talking about. They are in the dark. They don't understand this. They don't get it. That is crucial to the account of Christ's crucifixion. The disciples are not imagining. They are not envisioning. They are not writing fiction They present themselves, as Luke does here very honestly, as confused. They're lost in the dark. They're blind. Jesus has not used difficult vocabulary. What he has said is crystal clear as far as words go, and he has said it before, chapter 9, 22 and chapter 9, 44 and 45. We've read them before. He has told them this before. I will die and I will rise again. But they just do not comprehend what it means for Messiah to die, for Messiah to suffer. Standing on the northern banks of the Rubicon, Julius Caesar is reported to have said to his military entourage, still we can retreat. As he eyed that river, still we can retreat. There is no such option for Jesus. His will was set on fulfilling his mission. Not even death would break it. But for now, his disciples are blind. For now. As I mentioned, we have no account of Jesus crossing his Rubicon, crossing the Jordan River on this time, but a new Joshua crosses that river. 
And he plants his feet on the promised land in order to do battle against the greater giants of death and hell. A new Joshua has come. And like Israel of old, under the first Joshua, Jesus starts his last assault, this assault, on the enemy at the city of Jericho. Verse 35. As Jesus approached Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. Let's try to envision here for a moment what is happening as we put it together historically, we put it together geographically. Jericho, as we noted on the map earlier, is about six miles from the Jordan and about 17 miles, a good day's walk up to Jerusalem. It is Passover season. So by this point, this major pass, this major route up to Jerusalem is clogged with pilgrim travelers. They would travel together in bands. This is one of those places where you just get green with envy when you consider the Old Testament accounts, the, the culture and the heritage of that time. They would gather together in large groups of people and they'd walk for days. They'd just travel from place to place, depending, of course, on where their hometown is. But they would travel from place to place, coming to these towns and walk all day and just talk. Just enjoy one another's company. They're not listening to radios. They're not listening to anything. They're not watching anything. There's no Game Boys with the kids. They're just all talking. They walk together in this great band. It had to be just a riot. You wish you could be there. And to make it more exciting, as they'd come into these towns, the people who had arrived before them to stay in that town would stand on the sides of the street and would welcome them in. Kind of just a very festive event. As you come into town, you kind of get the little tingle feeling as all these other people greet you. And we're all heading up to Jerusalem and Passover, the great festival. And what was common among these bands, if you could find a rabbi to go with you or you were part of his entourage, the rabbis would go along and this was their time to shine, Passover. They'd be in these bands of travelers and they'd be teaching and dialoguing with the people. And people would be hovering around to hear the latest wisdom of the rabbi. That's where Jesus is as he makes this journey into Jericho. Surrounded by a large group of followers, he comes into the city and people are lined on the street. And of course, if you're a beggar, what greater fortune than Passover? All these people walking on the side of the road. This was a time to be out there on the road and to be asking for money. And there is such a man, a blind man, sitting there by the roadside begging. We learn his name in another account is Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus. When he heard the crowd, verse 36, going by, he asked what was happening. So there's a new band of travelers that are coming into town here. What's happening? They told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. Now, again, let's stop for a moment and picture. The rabbis of Israel, as I've said before, take the professional athletes of our culture. And add to them all of the musical entertainers of our culture. And add to them all of the politicians and all of the movie stars. And you wrap that all into one, and that's the rabbi of Jesus' day. These guys were the ultimate icon. And if you're coming into town as a rabbi, people really care. They're interested in listening to what you have to say and seeing if they can get a piece of the teaching and, and, and maybe in some way get a, a vision of this great rabbi. Well, here is Jesus passing into town in one of these bands. Well, no harm in telling the poor man what's happening. 
they'll think a little differently in a, in a moment, but they tell the man that Jesus of Nazareth is there. And I'd like us, if we can, to descend into his head for a moment. As we read these things so quickly, and we don't stop and put ourselves in the scene and think what it would be like as a blind beggar to hear that Jesus was passing by. Remember, messianic expectations are at a fever pitch. Israel is wild with messianic hope. Every Israelite longs for Messiah to come. There are genuine believers who want him to come and establish righteousness in the land. But pretty much everybody else at least wants Messiah to come and to show those Romans a thing or two. They want Rome out. They want to be liberated as the people of God, freed. And fueling this longing is the fact that God Himself had promised that just such a one would come. Remember Daniel 7. This one would come with authority and sovereign power and would rule forever and ever in righteousness. They know God has said that man's coming. And as they looked at the timing of the prophecies, they knew that it had to be soon. Messianic expectations are running very high. So here you have this blind man. He's blind. He's not deaf. He hears what's going on. He's caught up on the news of the day. He's well aware of what Jesus is doing throughout Palestine. And I'd like us to go back and consider just, in fact, how Jesus presented his ministry back to chapter 4 of Luke. Luke chapter 4 and verse 18. Luke 4 and verse 18. We are here at Nazareth with Jesus as he is in the synagogue and is teaching. He unrolls the scroll of the prophet Isaiah. And what does Jesus read? 4.18, the Spirit of the Lord is on me because He has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind. To release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, to proclaim the dawning of the messianic age. What did He say? To give sight to the blind. That's why I'm here, says Jesus. And he does it. He gives sight to the blind. Remember John the Baptist and his doubts. Let's go to chapter 7 of Luke, chapter 7 and verse 22. Remember John the Baptist's doubts. And what does Jesus say? John's not sure if Jesus is the Christ. Jesus says, Verse 22 of chapter 7, go back and report to John what you have seen and heard. Is the Messiah here? The blind receive sight. The lame walk. Those who have leprosy are cured. The deaf hear. The dead are raised. And the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is the man who does not fall away on account of me. The blind receive their sight. Isaiah 50 or 35 verses 5 through 6 I'll just quote it then will the eyes of the blind be opened and the ears of the deaf deaf unstopped then will the lame leap like a deer and the mute tongue shout for joy let's go back and think think for a moment what it's like to be blind 
blind to the beauties of nature, blind to eye contact with people, unable to read body language, in fact, unable to read anything. The frustration of never knowing exactly where you are or what is going around you. This man longed every day of his life, like any man on earth that's blind, to see. He wanted to see. And guess what? The one man in the universe that can give him sight happens to be walking down his street. What do you think happened in that man's soul right at that moment? The news detonates like fireworks show in his heart. Jesus is here. Jesus. And he responds in verse 38, calling out, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. Now wait a minute. What did he just say? You remember who, who was there? They said to him, Jesus of Nazareth is here, and he says, Jesus, son of David. That's a risky statement. The man yells out, Jesus, son of David, which is, in everyone's estimation, a messianic term. He is Messiah. He is the son of man. He is the one that God has sent. Jesus, son of David. He calls out. It's a dangerous phrase. Remember, the authorities in Israel don't like it that people are thinking Jesus is the son of David. Now, there's many of them that are, and the numbers are growing, but this man has nothing to lose. And he indicates his understanding that Jesus is Messiah. What is interesting is that this is the first place where someone says this in the Gospel of Luke. Having completed his ministry through Galilee, and then on this journey to Jerusalem from chapter 9, 51 and following, Jesus crosses his Rubicon. He crosses Jordan. He comes to Jericho. And here is a man who gets the point. He is the son of David. He's Messiah. This is childlike faith. Verses 15 through 18. Jesus, son of David. There's a second thing that he says. Have mercy on me. The contrast between this man and the rich young ruler that we studied a couple of weeks ago, or last week, in fact, seemed like two weeks ago, but last week, as we considered that man, notice the contrast. Notice the amazing contrast between these two. What do, how does the rich ruler approach Jesus? He comes to Jesus and he says, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? The rich man does not want mercy, he wants information. What must I do to inherit eternal life? The rich man is exposed by Jesus' question in verse 19 when he says, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. He does not know who Jesus is. He does not realize the gravity of his sinful condition. And remembering from last week, Jesus' question brings those two issues to light. Why do you call me good? Who do you think I am? Jesus. No one is good except God. That's you. You are a sinner. Who do you think I am? This is his conversation with the rich ruler. 
Think in contrast now to the phrase of this blind man. Son of David, have mercy on me. It is the exactly opposite response of the rich man. The blind man possessed none of the rich man's wealth, but he saw everything to which the rich man was blind. His lungs and his tongue respond to the exploding joy in his heart, and he yells out to Jesus, Have mercy on me. Verse 39. Those who led the way apparently leading the way before Jesus to clear the crowd, to let him into town. Those who led the way rebuked him, that is the blind man, and told the blind man to be quiet. But he shouted all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. He doesn't care about protocol. He desperately needs to see Jesus, and so he yells even louder. He cannot locate Jesus with his eyes. He can only locate him with his voice, and so he uses it. In verse 40, Jesus stops and orders the man to be brought to him. And when he comes, Jesus asks him, what do you want me to do for you? It's just a sideline here. Mark adds that the man leaves his cloak. An amazing observation and an amazing event. Blind people don't leave their cloak Beggars don't leave their cloak. And we think in terms of, well, we're Minnesotans. We've got 47 of them somewhere in the house, right? You've got to have coats. This is his single cloak. He's a beggar. He's blind. The city is full of people. You don't leave your cloak behind. He drops his cloak in his blindness, and he runs to Christ. He goes to Jesus and approaches him. Amazing story. And Jesus wants him then, as they come face to face, one with sight, the other who's working on it, he wants the man to express his faith. What do you want me to do for you? Lord, he says, I want to see. I want to see. It's all right there. Have mercy on me. You are the son of David. Please let me see. I believe Jesus wants him to express his faith and perhaps wants others around to know what God is about to do. Verse 42, Jesus said to him, Receive your sight, your faith has healed you. He didn't tell him to give away all his wealth. That's what he said to the rich man. This man knows who Jesus is, point one, and he knows who he is, point two. There's no need for anything more. He has come to trust Jesus, and he presents himself in childlike faith, asking for mercy. Jesus grants it to him and says, your faith has saved you. It is not that his faith is the source of his salvation. Jesus is the source of his healing. But Christ typically chooses to work in the lives of those who trust his power. And it's no different with this man. This blind man trusted that Jesus was Messiah, and he taps kingdom power. It is also interesting. What Luke is doing here is very involved. This is the first voice to proclaim the messianic power of Christ. 
And this is also the last healing in the book of Luke. Luke is saying to us with the healing of this blind man, in fact, there was another blind man healed right here at this same time. Luke doesn't bother with that. He wants us simply to see kingdom power. Jesus heals, and they see the man understanding who Jesus is and receiving by faith the mercy of God. So by this healing, Jesus is assaulting death. Remember, blindness is an evidence of the fall and simply a precursor to death. Jesus attacks death right here. Blindness, the result of the fall, and evidence of, this, of an assault on sin is what is accomplished here in this healing. And this healing serves then as an exclamation mark on Jesus' capacity to conquer death. Walking through Jericho, Jesus circles the walls of death, putting the enemy on notice that pretty soon the walls of death are going to come tumbling down. Let's think just for a moment again, in contrast, this rich young man, who I'll refer to as a rich young blind man, and the poor blind rich man whom we've just seen. Let's put their two accounts together. There really is some amazing connection here. I brought most of this up. But just as we look at this on this chart, as we look at the one's view of Jesus, the rich young blind man said good teacher referred to him as good teacher and Jesus exposed the weakness of that phrase why do you call me good as far as his view of self he says what must I do to inherit eternal life in his response to Jesus he clings to wealth and leaves in sorrow notice in each of these occasions the stark contrast with the poor blind rich man he says, not good teacher, but son of David. Not what must I do to inherit eternal life, but simply have mercy on me. He does not cling to his wealth, but throws down his cloak and leaves not in sorrow. He leaves in joy. What do you think Luke is saying in this gospel? What is being demonstrated here as Jesus crosses his Rubicon is two responses in stark contrast teaching us who it is that God saves and who it is that Jesus is and whom he loves. The rich man was blindly dependent upon himself and he blindly clung to his earthly possessions. The blind man clearly saw his need for divine mercy and held his hands open to the riches of God. The rich man returned to his wealth and wallowed in his spiritual blindness. The blind man who had nothing saw everything. One commentator refers to an interchange with Helen Keller, famous woman of, who was blind. Somebody said to her, isn't it terrible to be blind? And Helen Keller answered, better to be blind and see with your heart than to have two good eyes and see nothing. This man could stand there in that conversation. He could legitimately say, and how much better to have both. 
I can see. Jesus puts death on notice. The walls are going to come tumbling down. There's a blind man who sees. The response, as you can imagine, verse 43, he received his sight and followed Jesus, praising God. When all the people saw it, they also praised God. Some 80 years earlier, Julius Caesar and his army crossed the Rubicon, defeated Pompey, and set up Caesar's dictatorship in Rome. Caesar, Caesar's assault marked the end of the Roman Republic and the birth of the empire and ushered in a new age, an age that we really see the effects of today in, in, in Europe. Now, 80 years hence, we come to an outpost of the Roman Empire, and we meet a humble rabbi who crosses his Rubicon. This general does not ride into town on a white charger. He does not come with a great army behind him. This general is going to ride into town humbly and gently on the foal of a donkey. He would not conquer his military foe. He would not impose his reign in the great city of Jerusalem. This conqueror had crossed the Jordan to deliver a death blow to death. His was the ultimate conquest. Crossing Jordan, the die was cast. Jesus will enter Jerusalem to crush Satan's head. And in Christ's wake, think of it, these three some years, in his wake, he has left changed lives. Soon, he will be gone. But how many lives have been transformed? This blind man could see, and he was among them. A man who simply realized who he was. A man in need of mercy. A man who simply realized who Jesus was. The Son of David, the Son of Man, the Son of God. And a man then whom, according to the teaching of Jesus in verses 16 and 17 and 18, as we move past there, but verses 16 and 17 in particular, responded in childlike faith to Jesus. I don't think I probably speak to anybody who would walk into this building here today who has any ambitions of being a great military general or sees themselves as a Caesar of sorts. We realize we have a lot more in common with this blind man, but I call upon you to consider this morning as we consider his life and the change that Jesus works to consider in some respects you are just like that man. Now if you have any notions of being a great leader, you're in big trouble. 
but assuming that you've put any of those ambitions aside, realize that you, like this man, need to see two things. You need to see that you are in need of the mercy of God. If you come to God asking, what may I do to inherit eternal life? What can I do to perform to such a degree that God is pleased with me and accepts me into heaven? You are asking the wrong question because there is nothing that you can do to please a holy God. You cannot in yourself bring redemption. What you need is mercy. And if you can see yourself in the place of this blind man calling for mercy, now we're in the game. And the second thing that you must see is simply who Jesus is and what he has done. He is God, come in flesh, who will journey to Jerusalem to lay down his life to pay the penalty of your sin. And he will rise from the dead, conquering death, which is the final end of your sin. If you long for victory over death and you long to be forgiven of your sin, it is simply to come like this man, similarly to him, and to simply call upon Jesus for mercy. Trusting who he is and asking him to save you. If you don't need to be saved, in your own heart and mind, you're okay before God just the way you are. He's not going to save you. But if you know you need mercy, He is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through Jesus Christ. Come. He'll heal you. He'll give you life. Come. Let's bow for prayer. I could do something here. Just a quick change plan, but... Just prayerfully, quietly, if you can find your hymn sheet, your service of worship, that little handout, and look to the back on 643. Before we go to prayer, I'd like us just to consider something, and that's, I don't know exactly how this worked, but can you imagine this blind man, the first thing that he saw when he was healed was Jesus. What a sight. What a sight. And may that be the longing of our heart as we respond prayerfully and quietly. Let's just sing those first two stanzas together, 643. As we think of this blind man and seeing the face of Christ in our own life. <clears throat>